Well, folks, this is Roger Mayer coming to you from the legendary brewery Art Colony, located within the oldest neighborhood in Los Angeles, the east side's Lincoln Heights. My co-hosts, as usual, are the fabulous George Cursar out in Stamford, Connecticut, home of A-Rod, Christopher Lloyd, Cindy Lopper, Gene Wilder, Houdini, Meatloaf, and the final home of Jackie Robinson. Yeah, and good evening, guys. I actually live uh, about half a mile from Jackie Robinson's house, backyard shape like a baseball glove. It's a very nice house and uh, glad to be here tonight, guys. <laughs> and we also have uh, Mr. Pete Liska, who is zooming in live from a secret location with the confines <laughs> of a studio out in Los Angeles. Thank you Hello, very Pete. much. Yeah. So on this episode, we have one very special guest. He is screenwriter, film director, producer, and rarely sometimes an actor, Shaka King. Mr. King has built an impressive resume in less than a decade as a filmmaker who's already had a feature at Sundance that won a Spirit Award for the Someone to Watch Award called Newlyweeds. Two short films are screened also at Sundance called Moulinians and Lasercism, both tackling the funny, not so funny tropes of racial stereotypes. He directed five episodes of the sci-fi comedy series People of Earth for TBS wrote an episode and directed two for HBO's Cannabis Courier Dramedy Anthology series, High Maintenance, and also wrote three uh, for HBO's avant-garde sketch comedy series, Random Acts of Flyness, featuring Terrence Nance. And he directed four episodes of SNL's 80 Bryant's Hulu comedy series, Shrill. However, he is certainly going to be no, most known, for the time being at least, as the writer, producer, and director of the critically acclaimed feature film from Warner Brothers, Judas and the Black Messiah, about the betrayal and the final persecution at the hands of the FBI and their informant of Black Panther chairman Fred Hampton in Chicago. It's an astounding film that, despite its historical context, is ever more prescient today and is relatable as almost a modern parable. Nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Song, Fight for Her, Fight for You by Her, Best Cinematography by the great Sean Bobbitt, Steve McQueen's DP, Best Supporting Actors, Daniel Kaluuya, probably going to win the Oscar, and Lakeith Stanfield, and uh, Mr. King himself for both your Best Original Screenplay with Will Burson and Story by uh, all, both of them and the Lucas Brothers and Best Picture, along with Charles D. King and Ryan Coogler of the director of Black Panther, making a movie about a Black Panther. All that in a professional career that just started eight, nine years ago. God damn. Shaka, how are things? Great. Um, thank you, Roger. That was an amazing <laughs> intro. <laughs> well, I know you're a busy on a busy schedule, and so many thanks for taking the time to join us. My so pleasure. before we jump into the here and now, I, I just want to love to go back and have you fill in how you got started as a filmmaker. I know you're from Brooklyn. I know you went to Vassar and then Tisch and studied under the legendary Spike Lee. All that is very accessible information. But for me, I mean, like personally, I wanted to be in this life uh, as a film producer since I was 10. When did you catch the bug and, and tell us uh, about where you grew up and what inspired you to become a filmmaker? Well, um, I think I got really my interest in filmmaking 
I think starts with my interest in storytelling, which uh, I came to in 10th grade. Um, I was a pretty poor student from fifth to about fifth grade to 10th grade. I started a new school, the school poly prep uh, in Bay Ridge, and it just was just a tough adjustment for me all around. Um, and then I really, I mean, I have a friend, close friend uh, who once, not that long ago reminded me that I used to say to him, I'm not smart, uh, which I don't remember saying. But he was like, yeah, he used to say that because I just was really struggling uh, academically. And in 10th grade, I took this creative writing course taught by this teacher named Mr. Rerick. And I just took to it. Uh, I enjoyed the process of writing short stories and poetry. I got you know, validation from my classmates and from, you know, my teacher. I got a good grade for the first time in uh, <laughs> school in a long time. And uh, and that actually led to me kind of gaining the confidence to try in other subjects and, you know, kind of turn my academic career around. Um, but storytelling just became like something I was into. And the truth of the matter is, is that I'd been doing it for years before that, because I just was a big liar, you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so I had a lot of practice and I enjoyed lying. I enjoyed making up stories uh, because it was fun. And so, you know, after high school, I, you know, I got in the Vassar and I wanted to study creative writing there, but they didn't offer that as a major. Uh, and then my junior year, I found filmmaking and started taking some courses and just was like oh this this is something that kind of combines you know i can i can use my love of music which i i was really into i can merge that with storytelling and i i found that i liked um you know the, the visual arts as well which i didn't know i had an interest in or or, or you know predilection for so um, that was, that was new. That was a big discovery for me, you know? And, and I also, I probably, I think was somewhat influenced by my parents in the sense that I grew up watching movies with my mom a lot. Like that was really my Saturday, my weekend activity in the evenings. We, you know, we'd rent videos from Royal Video, from this local video store in Brooklyn and pop popcorn and hang out and watch movies. You know, I was, I was our thing. Um, and also she, when I was in high school, she wrote a play, wrote two plays, one of which my father produced that she toured around New York. Uh, and, you know, we built the set and my uncle built the set on the second floor of our house. You know, we used to keep the set in the basement, you know, and I worked backstage. I worked on building the set. I was just involved in it and I hated it. I actually couldn't stand it, but it was my job. How old were you? Um, she probably was doing this between the ages of anywhere, like I'd say like probably 14 to 16, 17. So a few no. years. A teenager yeah. and who the hell would want to be? I, know that. <laughs> I wanted I wanted to be playing basketball and listening uh -huh. to rap. And I had to do that, you know. Um, but I think there's something there, there's something to it. You know, I don't I don't know what I osmosed. Um, but I just also I think came from very creative parents. 
and create a family. You know, I got an uncle as a jazz musician. My mom wrote plays. My dad produced. My dad also designed and collected a lot of you know African art. Right. So I just think I I came from a pretty artistic you know lineage um, and sound filmmaking, and and I just took to it like I said. That that makes a lot of sense too. And it's funny you say you discovered your love for the visual arts tertiary almost right after writing and music and, and so forth and at that time i if i watched i've watched all your films in order recently so uh the trajectory of your acumen as a visual storyteller develops i mean obviously it whatever lends itself to the piece like newlyweeds is a completely different story than judas and the black messiah but the way that you use the language of cinema uh, well, in both. I mean, they're both strong, but I'm saying, I mean, one, one is inherently independent and, and structured that way, and one is inherently commercial. I mean, Judas and the Black Messiah is like from out of nowhere, you just made this pop art, essentially. I mean, you, you created something, um, you know, that anybody can access. Uh, I, mean, God, wait, I, I mean, you had to, knowing you and I worked with you, I mean, just digging deep, man. I mean, what you must have been scared shitless and also at the same time the confidence you had i mean where where did you dig all that out i mean when when you when you finally got just the trajectory in 10 years you did this shaka 10 years you did it's quite amazing and and i mean you made a movie that i truly believe will contextually will be regarded as a film in the hallmark of i mean dare i mention the scorsese you know, or, or Coppola, you know, as far as the, the way that the film is structured, it certainly seemingly lends itself to that. Um, yet the funny thing is, as big as your film is, it's also very intimate. What's something that uh, several of those films lack, you know, they're more grandiose. The grandiosity is also the, the, the in that film, anyway, I'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself um, when I'm talking too much. I want to hear more from you. So tell me, Shaka, beyond, uh, I mean, just getting there, how did you find yourself in the ability to make this picture, Judas and the Black Messiah? How through all this did it come and get in your lap? Well, you know, it came to me as the, the pitch from the Lucas Brothers. Uh, you know, Weed works together on a pilot presentation um, some years back. and. Uh, you know, just, I don't know, honestly, I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I don't know what they saw in me that made them think, oh, we think you're the guy to direct this, this movie that they said, this is how they, they said, we want to make a movie about Fred Hampton and William O'Neill, that's the departed inside the world of COINTELPRO. And, um, and obviously I, I thought that was the best pitch I'd ever heard in my <laughs> life. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm in, you know? Um, but what they didn't know, which is why I don't, I don't know why they thought of me was that I love crime movies. I love seventies crime movies, eighties crime movies, nineties. I love, I love crime movies. They don't make them as much anymore. So it's almost like it's rare, actually quite frankly, like you don't really, you don't think about it, but it's actually a, a genre that just doesn't get made anymore. Really? Except certainly until, not gritty ones uh, on TV. Yes, TV. series. But I mean, movies. They don't make crime movies anymore. They do not. It's very rare. They don't make Lumet, you know, style, you know, Friends of Eddie Quill. Like that stuff's 
Shaka, they don't make adult movies anymore. I know, I know, (laughs) I know. They don't. But but within those, but within those, they don't make as many. Scorsese makes one when he feels like it, and it's always an event because he's one of the best ever to do it. And it's also like one of the few that's going to come out. You know, the Safties. Who else, really? There's not a lot of folks really doing it. You know, Um, but I love I love them. You know, and. right after you know newlyweeds didn't really do shit for me i i did get an agent out of it and you know soon after once i realized the film landscape wasn't really hospitable towards me at the time pivoted to tv and the first show that i developed and i tried to pitch was a show about a cousin of mine who was a contract killer in the 80s as a teenager and i we put together this crazy deck it was a crazy it was a great pitch and all of the networks were like, this is really good, but what makes you think you can do this? Because oh. I hadn't been, you know, they'd only seen newlyweeds in my shorts. Not, not, none, nothing in those really told them I could make a movie like this. And so I don't, I knew I could. And, you know, you asked like, where I got the confidence that I could. It's because I'd made dramas, which, so I had the drama part down, you know, I'd made I'd, I'd made dramedies, but I'd also made, you know, I'd done, I'm, the rest, God bless the dead, my, my old teacher, Bill Riley, said to me, my first year of film school, um, he was like, you need to be making dramas. I think I tried to make, uh, I don't know if it was, I made some kind of genre, I can't remember what made him, what prompted him to say, I, you should be making dramas. But um, I, I felt confident in, in, in doing, in covering that aspect. And I'd watched, and love, like I said, so many crime movies that I, I felt like I could nail the tone. Um, the only thing that was a bit daunting, just because I'd had basically zero experience shooting, this was action. Um, but I knew that my DP and Sean Bobbitt was incredibly well versed, so I felt comfortable, like, you know, really relying on him when I needed to, um, yeah. and also like. I didn't realize that, yeah, I have watched so much stuff and I am, you know, I am a visual artist that I could see what yeah. it should be. You know, I, I you, you, you don't really, it's, it's the crazy thing about filmmaking that I think filmmakers realize, but that I think the industry is hopefully coming to realize, but it's taken a while for them to, is that when you're a filmmaker, you're a filmmaker and when you're a film when you're a filmmaker and a film lover, you can probably you won't know what you can do, what you have the ability to do, you know, tonally until you try. And you'd be surprised how many things you can access. You know, like Brian Coogler isn't known as a com- as a comedy, as a, you know, as a comedy director. I promise you, he would direct one of the funniest comedies you've ever seen because he's hilarious, right. and he's got timing. And he's a great filmmaker. He'd make an amazing comedy. The day he decides to do it, it's going to be hysterical, you know. Well, rewatching Newlyweeds, that's what I I, I noticed in the drama bits because it's it's you know it gets labeled a comedy and it's not really a straight comedy. It's not a comedy. It's it's got humorous bits in it, but it's um, there's a lot of scenes that are cut comedically during dramatic moments. And it's like you could go, you switch back and forth, and it's like it's pretty, it's pretty deft handling, you know. And I, I know you have an editor, 
but you know, a director sits behind the editor, you know, and certainly makes a lot of those decisions along with an editor. Of course, an editor is there just really to help build the movie with you at that point. Um, so yeah, that's great. I mean, it's like Adam McKay, another good example of somebody who danced from being a com comedic director to, you know, now he's vice and big short. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's, yeah. and I'm, I wasn't surprised to see how good he is at that. Right. Well, it's interesting. If I may jump in, uh, yeah. you know, you always see guys like Robin Williams, for example, you know, they could make you Actors, cry yeah. comedians, people that are centered in comedy seem to have a better understanding of the tragedy. I think with that's going on around them so they can deliver, um, you know, a comedic performance fine, but they could, they, they can also deliver that dramatic performance where I think maybe dramatic actors might struggle with a comedic performance, you know, but then you ever see, did you ever see life's too short? Life's too short. It was this, uh, it was this, it was produced by Ricky Gervais. He starred this actor as a little person. I forget his name. He's UK based actor. Uh, you know, and I, I haven't watched it, but I know what you're talking about. Liam Neeson is on that show. And it's one of the funniest <laughs> things I've ever seen. He's not he is, exactly known as a comedian. <laughs> he's, yo, know, it's one of the, I, I used to play it for people. It's one of those, like, oh, you want to see something funny? And I'd play them that. Because you've never seen Liam Neeson this way. And it's, the, and the joke, I'm not going to ruin it. Just watch it. Just watch it. <laughs> but I mean, it. at the same time, we're watching your shorts, Roger Cynicism shorts. They're funny. Laser Cynicism's hilarious. Yeah. And I think that speaks to the point that you can deliver Judas and the Black Messiah and that material and that understanding of 1968 and that, that potent energy that's going on in the country, maybe because you did have that comedic sense in that timing as well. Just as you speak of Ryan Coogler in that way, I think you look to yourself with the comedic timing. You have it, man. I, you know. Well, I mean, I think, I think the thing about comedy, that, the thing that I find funny and the things that I think a lot of comedians find funny is specificity. It's just the specificity. I find what I like about crime dramas is the specificity. And that actually, my reaction is a lot of times to laugh. It's stuff that's not necessarily funny, but it's funny to me because it's so real, you know? Mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. so, it's so authentic, you know? Like Robert Altman's movies to me are hilarious, even when they're not even intending to be hilarious, just because there's a line here, or a moment there that's just so real and so specific that Absolutely. it makes you, you know, it makes you laugh. I just watched California split recently. And uh, that, that has a lot in that. That's yep. like, it's like that. Yeah. Um, you know, Shaka, let me ask you before we really dive deep into Judas, what are you sick of talking about as far as Judas and the black Messiah? What are, what, what has driven you crazy that you've talked about over and over or people have asked you constantly? Probably um, how this movie come to you. I just asked you that question too. I know, I know, but it, <laughs> but but it's but you asked it in a more roundabout way, so I could talk about other things. But it's just like, you know, it's like that's like the first question everyone asks, and it's like you could just you know how you know how it came to me. Yeah. If you talk if you looked at one, if you looked at one article, yeah. one, you yes. know how it you know how we it do. Came yes. To it's Chaka, can I can I ask you just a quick question before uh, diving into Judas and the Black Messiah? I really appreciated Moulin Yans because I lived in Williamsburg right next to an Italian social club. And it's remarkable how on point 
you guys did that. I mean, Thank everything you. down Thank to you. the interactions with the woman. And uh, these guys would play the Sinatra at max decibels. And they would even play <laughs> pornographic movies. And no one in the neighborhood can say anything to these guys, except for one woman who came up to them and said, nobody wants to hear this in the neighborhood. The same exact way that you guys, that you did it. And it was so on point. And the guys were getting chastised by this woman and tries to ask her out on a date. What are you doing after you get off work? And she's like, fuck you. It was incredible how well you did that. And was that in Fort Greene? Was that on uh, Washington Park? No, it was in Bed-Stuy. No, oh, it, was look, in Bed-Stuy. Uh, it was in Bed-Stuy. It looked just yeah. like this. Uh, looked like Fort. Did you live in Fort Greene at all? Mm-mm, Bed-Stuy. Okay. Always Bed-Stuy. Okay, cool. Yeah, that was great. I really appreciate it. And I think uh yeah they're, they're, they're in walking distance of each other but yeah they are yeah, they're, they're they're adjacent neighborhoods yeah I I was, lived... I, it's been years since i lived in uh, uh fort green i think it was like 2001 like right around uh 9-11 unfortunately but you know i think that comedy that you're doing especially you know i really laughed out loud with herkimer uh dufresne as well wow you know? oh man i would love <laughs> to see that character reoccur on uh you know like a sketch it was incredible and then at the very end when he sat on the table i was just laughing out loud you know physical <laughs> comedy can still make everybody laugh right oh yeah that's one of my favorite endings to anything i've ever made incredible i mean it, it just i don't even i'm trying to remember how we got to that being the end but when we did it we were just like Oh man! And if, it's and if you, you were rewarded if you stuck around for the song too, which is, was it? I found <laughs> the song is the best part. Yo, the song yo, was I that a freestyle, or did you guys write yo, those lyrics? Yo, so I have to give a special shout out. This is like my brother. All right, so the 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 character in Moulin Yans, the guy with the ponytail, right? It's the funniest person I know. It's my friend Cab. It's the funniest person I've ever met. Childhood friend. He's the funniest person many people have ever met. Right. And Herkimer, he used to live upstairs from me. He's an amazing rapper, amazing, amazing rapper. You should look up Cavalier as his name. Um, but um, he used to live upstairs from me and he would make music, but he would also our whole lives, he would just like sing songs like around the house. He'd sing songs while going up the stairs and the songs would be just absurd. They're just absurd characters that don't exist. Me making up songs about them as he moved about the house. And when we finished Herkimer Dufresne, I was like, this name, first of all, the name Herkimer, <laughs> I got from him just saying the word Herk, the name Herkimer around the house. Just, the I don't know I've what he was heard talking that name about. Before was, it was a, there's a college upstate called Herkimer yeah. County. Yeah. A, it's, a, it's a street. It's a street in Bed-Stuy too. That's yeah. Okay. But, but, but he just would go around saying that name and it got, I think, stuck in my head. It's like, I was like, you know what, Cab, give me a song. Give me just, you know, one of the songs. And he did four or five of them. That's my, this one's my favorite, but there's another one he made called Pat Yourself on the Back. <laughs> that was like, sounded like the theme song to Give Me a Break. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was all, it was equally hysterical. I, oh, I just, Jesus. one of my favorite things is that, and the end song to Herkimer Dufresne and the end song to uh, Moulinian's which was done by Kwale Chris, who contributed music to the Judas and the Black Messiah uh, soundtrack, or score rather. So, yeah. And I just think that, you know, that, you know, the fact that we're able to laugh and, you know, elicit these uh, emotions that, and then you just pivot into this heavy dramatic subject, just, you know, displays your enormous range. And, you know, I'm really personally excited about, you know, the scale of possibility that you have going forward. So uh, Thank you. just Thank knowing you. that, 
you know, your palate is really strong. So, uh, you know, I know you're sick of talking about the same old stuff, but like, yeah, I'm excited to see what you, you know, obviously after the award season, I'm really excited to see what uh, you do next. Me too, man. Me too. I can't <laughs> wait to, I can't wait to get back to work, honestly. Well, thank you. Though. So just talking about Judas, you know, when you and I were working on Lasericism, uh, you were talking about how I'm going to talk about the movie now. <clears throat> I want to talk about the feds. I want to talk about the police in the movie. You told me that you were going to treat them a certain way. And I, you know, I, I looked out for that very specifically in the movie. And, and do you, do you remember what you told me? How I'd you probably remind yeah. me. I think I'd probably do, but remind me. Well, you, you mentioned that you were going to treat the feds and the cops like they do in World War II movies, the Germans and the Japanese, you know, as far as like being the nameless, faceless uh, antagonist, you know, the, the antagonist that we just, you know, all, all the good guys get all the lines, they get all the heroics. And you might have one representation, Jesse Plemons, in the movie that uh, is the sounding board for the vile, evil empire. And, you know, could you just talk a little bit about that? Wait, wait. Yeah, I, I think we did that. I think we just did. I think I just said that. <laughs> I know. I think, I mean, I think, no, I mean, I think we did it. Like, oh, I think the movie. I did yeah, no, you did do it. No, that's what yeah. I'm saying. But yeah. when I tell people that, they, what? and I go, no, man, got to watch it. You got to be very, very, very astute in watching that. And they, because they felt like, you know, I guess they just see, when they, even when they see white faces on the screen, you know, particularly from a white audience, they still have this attachment to them as not necessarily being the bad guys. Do you know what I mean? So there's still that. that, that well, that it's weird. interesting. It's so interesting to me, you know, to, um, to hear you say that just because one of the things that I look out for when people talk about the film is, how we handle the feds and how we handle specifically the portrayal of Agent Mitchell. Um, because it, we did, you know, the decisions we made were very intentional in terms of um, attempting to give him complexity uh, and in a lot of ways, I think, indict the thing that makes America most dangerous which is the massive PR campaign that is successfully waged, you know, across this world over centuries of being, um, you know, is this, this beacon of, of moral, you know, righteousness. Um, and so knowing that for a significant amount of our viewers, many not white, um, knowing that they were going to watch a film with, you know, an actor who looks like Jesse. And it was one of the reasons I wanted to cast Jesse, um, just from a physical perspective. Um, because I think that there's something that, that plays upon the century, you know, just the years of brainwashing that we as a culture have had in terms of, you know, movies, Hollywood movies, where a face like Jesse's is one that you you feel like you can trust you know even though the irony being that like jesse is often cast in menacing roles 
But the thing that makes Jesse menacing is that he doesn't look menacing, but right. he's, his behavior and his actions are. So I, I wanted someone who, as an acting teacher I had once said, you know, about one of our classmates, she said he was American. He looked American-American, meaning he was white and he had blue eyes, you know? Um, so I wanted someone like that. And I wanted to, you know, slowly reveal layers of who he was, you know, um, so that up top, I wanted to manipulate you the same way that O'Neill's manipulated, you know, uh, and I still wanted to give you enough clues to where if you're paying attention, you know exactly who he is and what he's about. You know, that moment where he compares the, the Panthers to the Klan, that, that should let you know exactly who this man is. But interestingly enough, I remember one of the, the only screening we had uh, in person, only, only sort of feedback screening we had in person right before the pandemic, we invited, you know, probably a little less than a dozen people, half the room was probably white, half was, was non-white. Um, and it was so interesting seeing how our white audience members, the, the bulk, if not all of our white audience members, viewed Agent Mitchell versus our black audience members, um, where our white audience members were like, you know, he seemed like a decent guy until that moment at the end is when our black audience members were like, what, did you not hear him compare the Panthers to the Klan? You know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought. I mean, he. I thought he was oily from the jump. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is but, that, but, do, but just, you know, things. Oh. The things he's doing. You know, the things he's doing to. You know, he. He prosecuted right. the Klan. He prosecuted. You know, or, or rather, he pursued the Klan. You know, as an FBI agent. He. You know, he's got invited this like black kid over to his house, and he's got his baby in front of him, and he's this. You know, we're trying to disarm you. You know, we're trying to fool you. He's taking this guy to like get steak dinners. You know, he when he finds out that that uh, George Sam's is actually an FBI informant, and that an FBI informant's out here committing homicides. Mm -hmm. You know, he he's clearly not he's clearly not thrilled with that information, but he doesn't do anything with it. He doesn't move in a different manner. He continues to do his job, which is. That's like, we just wanted to, in a lot of ways, that's not, that is kind of liberalism. That's kind of, that's kind of almost liberalism. You know, it's today's, it's today's liberalism. So it was like, let's, let's play with that. You know? When he says, um, when he does say that, and he, when he does compare the Klan and the Black Panthers, though, what, what happened to me when I was watching was that this is, this is the evil of J. Edgar Hoover and the brainwashing that he's putting in his agents. That's it's coming from the top mm -hmm. and to convey, cause I, I mean, I have nothing for, but sure. contempt for J. Edgar Hoover to begin with, but to me that conveyed, look at the message and look at where it's coming from. Does at that point, you, do you even believe that that guy believes what he's saying? You know what I mean? And, but, but I think, I think, it's, you can't, I think, ascribe it all to J. Edgar Hoover because he didn't invent this. He yeah. just weaponized something and was yeah. very good at it. But yeah. these these individuals who he's talking to, he, they already have been indoctrinated with the same ideology that he was. Mm 
Yeah. You know, they're just not as a, they're just not as um, sadistic, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, the, yeah. or like strategic in that way. They're just, yeah. sen- they're just sentinels. Yeah. However, but, but I will I will say that the way that you portray Jesse Plemons in the film with the seduction that he has with Lakeith Stanfield with the O'Neill uh, I belies some of that. I, I think that character is understanding of the manipulative seductive tactics that he chooses to pray to upon, employ. To, that's yes. what but you know what? That's what that's what I that's what I enjoy about that character. Yeah. I didn't tell you that. I didn't no. tell you that you feel that way, but somebody else feels totally different. And I, you, who knows who's right? Oh, because what oh. some people could just see it as a guy, you know, I mean, yeah, he's, he's trying to get close to a CI. That's what they do. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, that's what they do. But, but, you know, he also is not, he's, yeah, he's giving him the cat and a stick, you know? Shaka, can I ask you a question about the music? Uh, I know I, I've seen some of your interviews. I know you spoke a lot about um, the power of the early 90s golden age hip hop, uh, whether it's Public Enemy, Shout Out Long Island, of course, Tribe Called Quest, Karis One, Most Def, Early Ice Cube. And that's how me, uh, I, I learned about a lot of the individuals in this movie, hearing it, his name maybe on an early Ice Cube record. Right, uh, right, right, and, right. And, uh, and I think at that point in time, Ice Cube and Ice T in particular, um, the messaging that they wanted to get out to a wider audience is to educate them about these individuals. And the only way that this type of behavior is really going to end is if we all kind of band together. And that's kind of what Chairman was doing in the film. Uh, so I saw a lot of parallels with that. But uh, there's one song that really jumped out at me, Deep Gully by the Outlaw Blues Band. Did you know that song from growing up or did you hear that sampled in the cypress hill song when the shit goes down because in that song they're talking about confronting the police with guns i heard that song sampled on a de la record de la soul yeah they sampled it in on, search yeah i i only heard i know I, I didn't even realize the shit goes down is that beat I that's what I made me think of that that sample so jumped out at that's me so right funny. away and i thought I heard that, that maybe Mm-hmm. No, nah, I heard that sample on a Daylight record, and then years later heard the original, and was like, "Oh, I've always loved that sample. Oh, this original yeah. is insane, and yeah. it should be." And and it was just one of those songs that I just filed away to put in the movie someday, because mm-hmm. I knew it was a great needle drop. I was like, "Someday I'll use this." And then I knew it was also. I have a, like a, I have another song that's like I like a like a nice showing up with a nice car song. It's a car song. Yeah. And that song is a car. It's like that song was my number one part. And it just happened. And I was like, let me Love see when that. this came out. Let me see the era. And I it was saw such it a great transition. 69. I was like, yeah. oh, this perfect. is perfect. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. It was just a great transition. And uh, yeah, I really appreciated that song. And uh, I loved all like the, the heavy funk and jazz, uh, just like the, the, you know, not necessarily. Uh, written out piece of music but just kind of like uh the sonics that really worked well you know those analog instruments that musician real professional musicians played in that era you know that was really evocative in the film and it, i think it really added to a lot it's great man thank you thanks a lot thank you thanks a lot so i i know that both of the boys uh, uh pete and george uh commented on uh the women two particular women in the film 
both. Uh, I will let them go ahead and ask. Pete, go, go ahead first. Well, for me, you know, um, Dominic Fishback's performance was incredible, you know, and, you know, conveying the way you conveyed this love story and in which is the story. I mean, if you don't know that it's the story, then you don't really get it all, I don't think. But having said that, the poem, which I know has been discussed a ton, um, really affected me. I, I called Roger after I call after I watched it and we talked about it. He sent me an article that uh, Dominique wrote it, in fact, which is pretty well known at this point. Mike, what I was curious about was because this is a collaboration now that adds such this incredible layer to the film. Was your plan always to have her write that? Did that, how, how did that happen? And if it was always the plan, that's just even, it speaks even more to your open mind and what you're willing and, and what you were willing to do as a filmmaker to put that out there. But to me, that moment after the auditorium and she's saying the poem to him, is it's everything it's really really yeah, everything yeah. and the words are just so powerful so yeah. i'd love to hear no, about how that came no, to you thank you so the crazy thing is she came to me um one of her, her first notes was that she thought that the that Dom, that, that i rather deborah should recite poetry uh because she mentions that she's a poet and she's carrying around this book mm -hmm. and so i said i agree uh and it just so happened that this was a, you know, this storyline about her getting pregnant um, and thinking about balancing motherhood and being a revolutionary. Uh, and that coinciding with Chairman getting out of prison um, and just, you know, him learning that he's a father. And even if he doesn't vocalize that concern, just maybe it's something that could be lingering in his head or maybe something that she could bring to his attention that makes him consider something he hasn't thought about in the past. And so I, I was, I knew we needed that scene. And when she, when she mentioned wanting to write a poem, I was like, oh, that would be such an artful way to, to cover this, this subject matter. Um, and then I'm like, oh man, this dude's been locked up. So, you know, when he sees his, his lady's book, he's gonna wonder like, yo, what, what's she been thinking? What's been on her mind? I haven't had a chance to really speak, you know? And it was like, Okay, and then I started to just, you know, you start to just kind of draw the scene up and I drew the scene out and then I was like, ooh, we always had this winner's shootout that is just, is there, but what if there's a way to kind of make it into a montage with the poem so that it works, they work hand in hand. And I was like, all right, Dom, I need you to make a poem about this and I need it to also work, I need the words to also reflect this, you know, which is happening in this other scene. And she just gave me a longer poem and I just, you know, cut it down a bit and it was perfect. Uh, did that collaboration, it really, really adds such a special layer to the film. And you're like, you, you, could, you couldn't have said it better. It's an artful way to cover that whole thing. And I mean, I certainly appreciate it. Uh, it fantastic stuff so my head I, I no I did too when she you know it, it starts with her having that planting that seed I mean like I've said to people whenever they ask me about it, I'm like you know that scene doesn't exist that poem 
shaped that entire section. It's a, that poem, I put it to you like this. When we pitch this movie to studios, you know, one of the reasons we couched it in genre was because we knew that those set pieces, when they made themselves into a trailer, would get butts and seats. And the poem was so good. And what, and the thing we realized, you know, pretty soon into filming was that the performances were so strong that they were that that whereas we used to look at you know things like for example chairman's speech as or chairman's speeches rather as um you know the vegetables right of the movie they actually are they're like candied yams you know what i mean <laughs> like they're set pieces as well most you definitely know? Yeah. um and dominique's poem is a set piece you know it's so much so that our second trail is structured around it right yeah uh, it's it. fantastic man yeah and, and then uh, george because we're yeah. getting down there i just want to uh, get your uh, question in yeah sure uh shaka dominique thorne uh i thought her charisma and uh just the authority she had on stage every scene she was in she kind of just was uh explosive i really uh she was my favorite uh actor in the whole film and that's saying a lot um did you know her from your days in brooklyn i know she's a very from what i understand a pretty accomplished stage actress and uh, i'm i'm very much looking forward to uh seeing what she does next i you know as as i said with you because i i mean it it, it seems like the the boundaries are just uh limitless so can you just talk a little bit of more about you know uh her and you know when she pulled the gun on uh bill o'neill in in the vehicle i mean her just her uh facial expressions just really cut through the screen for me at least yeah you know dominique Thorne, man incredible actor incredible yeah. actor uh i came to know her through alexa fogel who was our casting director and you know, she had Dominique auditioned and I'd say probably less than a minute into the audition, I stopped it because I, I was, she was cast, you know what I mean? I was done. And like, I'd seen people before and like, I'd seen people, like this was done. I knew it instantly. And I told Alexa, I was like, yeah, that's, that's, she's the one. And I remember Dominique, when I, you know, cut her short, this look came on her face like fuck like he didn't like my performance he didn't realize no you're perfect you know so she came she came prepared. equipped she yeah. came prepared you know um and she what she was able to do is what what makes people scary what makes a lot of times it makes people scary it's like do you all see a prophet movie about uh oh a prophet about, yeah of course yeah it's a great a movie prophet. i do not it's one of my favorites yeah it's, that's um, a fantastic film yeah it's one of my one of my favorite movies and there's a villain in that movie the the antagonist in that film is um this old man who runs this uh corsican gang in the yeah, prison yep. in, in a and, prison. yeah yeah and he his performance is one where 
you don't know when he's going to strike. You don't know how he's going to strike. He's going to he's going to start off like with his arm around you being really sweet to you and then he's going to stab you in the eye with a spoon. And you don't know when it's going to happen, but you know it's going to happen. And he just he's he's scary because of how slow he moves. Dominique did that. Her pacing. Oh yeah. You know, the way that she paced herself in her performance. Her pacing, it's all about her. Jesse did this as well. They both of them, they changed the tempo. They would slow things down. Um, and they did that quite a bit. And uh, it's what makes her so strong, you know, especially in that interrogation scene. Um, you know, she, yeah, she was excellent. You must have been thrilled as it was unfolding before your eyes. You must have been thrilled. I mean, that's yeah. just, yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I was gonna say Pete also had you had one more question, Pete. You wanted to- I got I got one. I wanna I, I do wanna shout out my friend Tessiana Ellie. She's a co-worker of mine and we've been discussing the film. She absolutely loves the film and she's an activist in her own right. And she gave me some questions to ask, but I will we're almost out of time, but I will I do want to get to one. Um because the film, you know, is just it's 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 leaving this great mark on society at a great important time. And so she asks, what advice can you offer to individuals who are passionate about evoking social change and surviving the potential negative fallout? Um, what negative fallout, I guess, is the question. I think, I think what she's saying is that, is that trying to, she, having, having her efforts be beat back and how does she get through, you know, any problem that may come to her from from fighting for justice and fighting because she she's she's a fighter she's a wonderful human being and you know she seems to be seems to maybe get the short in the stick at times or or something along those lines got it got it well i mean you know i i think um you mentioned you know the truth of the matter is that she's a fighter and she's resilient and that's just the name of the game resilience is so the name of the game it's like yeah I just, I see it all the time, you know, um, and so across, like, I think no one's more resilient than revolutionaries. No one. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the only way you were going to stop Fred Hampton was to kill him. Yeah. That's there was no stopping him. Otherwise he wasn't ever, he was never going to stop ever. He was, if you put him in prison, he's going to radicalize the prison. That's right. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's right. So, you know, he, this resilience, you know, which he had, which he has. Yeah. You know, and, and that doesn't mean that doesn't mean like shit doesn't get hard. And, you know, sometimes you might need I, to pause for a bit, <laughs> you, you know, but yeah. but resilience is the name of the game. I, I always find I, I always find the term fuck you as a pretty good indication <laughs> to, you know, push people back when you need to. You know, it's like, you know, as, as the man says, kill them all. Complete satisfaction. Um, so. Shaka, we're just trying to, we're wrapping up here. I know you, you've got to, to go and I, I thank you for your time and everything. Uh, I, again, so you're about to come out to Los Angeles in about a week and a half, uh, a big night. Um, I'm anticipating your film winning at least one Academy Award. I think that's pretty much a given at this point. We'll be rooting um, for you, man. And yes, sir. Uh, I know it seems like the awards uh, have more and more over recent years have been preordained pretty much, you know, by the time we get to the Oscars. Uh, it's funny. We are, uh, 
in the process, we, we have we have some all somebody in common that you went to school with. I wanted to give a shout out who is trying to help us get another person you went to school with on our program. And uh, her name is Kristen Adams. She's a production designer on the Ellen show. She went to Tish with you at the same time, uh, along with uh, Chloe Zhao. So just uh, have you been able to, uh, uh, I guess this weird pandemic year, you really haven't been able to travel around each other because a lot of it, like the Moonlight guys and the La La Land guys. Uh, no, yeah, no, that didn't happen this year. Yeah. So one of the downsides of, um, you know, not being able to have a traditional theatrical release. Have you seen all the films? I have. I've seen all of them. Yeah, me too. At this point, I have. Yeah. Anyway, so again, thank you. I'm very excited for you. Beyond that, I know you're going to have other things. You, you've already got several things cooking right now. I, uh, is there anything you can give us a taste on? I mean, nothing that, that, that you know, uh, I could talk about in any real way. I know. You I, know knew I, mean? gonna, I knew you were going to fucking say that. <laughs> I, it's true. <laughs> it's okay. I don't want to, like, get, say some half-baked thing. I know, I know. Or it not happen, which could, you know, happen. Hey, but I bet that... It's not that, happening. Is nothing. I mean, that doesn't matter. But, the, but it's more like... Because it could, it could never happen. All the, all, nothing. You know? I, it's yeah, not, I'm, not, I, I'm not one... I'm not someone who doesn't talk about things because they might not happen. Okay. Things could be like, <laughs> think we could be about to travel to wherever the place is and it could not happen. That's absolutely correct. And, you know, that TV series that you wrote with the deck and everything else or the, the mm -hmm. movie that you, mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I bet you they'll take your fucking call now. Yeah. <laughs> they, they would, but I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to make, it's funny because my, my, my cousin's definitely trying to get me to make it, but I don't feel comfortable making it anymore. So it sucks. Isn't I would have made bitch. it then, but I, I can't make it anymore. Life's a bitch. Yeah. What are you going to yeah. do? I mean, you grow, you, you change, you know, yeah. it's like, you know, it, it's like I say, you, 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 you are what you are, but what you're influenced about what, you know, you became a filmmaker for various, various reasons from working with your parents on a play to the, the storytelling that you grew in love to, you know, it's like somebody wrote the, uh, a review of newlyweeds calling you one part of poet, one part of journalist. I thought that was a pretty accurate description of some the way you kind of look at this, uh, the way your art presents itself, I should say. And, you know, I, hey, I mean, you're, you're my friend. I think you, uh, but beyond that, I am so excited for where you are right now. I cannot be happier and I cannot wait to see what happen next, happens next. And, you know, I, I don't know, man. It's just the, you are the reason why I do what I do. I mean, I get up in the morning and I'm inspired every day to continue working in this business because of people like you, Shaka. And that's, you know, when I was a kid growing up, you know, it's everybody from, you know, from Francis Ford Coppola to Martin Scorsese to Spike Lee to David Lynch to, you know, it's yeah, yeah, as, and, and you grow and you morph as you get older and you start, you know, I've seen so many movies at this point. But, you know, it's your you have entered that lexicon, but, you know, particularly with your breadth of work and this movie here as an inspiration for not just me, but I'm, I'm hoping a whole new generation of filmmakers to come. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks. You honor us. For, you the, honor us. For the kindest you, words, man. Kind of, kindest of kindest of words. Sir. Thank and, you, man. Uh, and any any last thoughts there before you sign off? 
Yeah, just thanks for having me. It was fun, you know. Um, yeah, thank you, man. Thank you, man. Well, hey, Shaka, I know that you're an um, avid vinyl collector just by seeing uh, your, uh, you know, just seeing your uh, setup on the Zooms. I, I watch a lot of your interviews and, uh, you know, that, that music, it sent me down a rabbit hole. And one of the first records I bought is this called uh, Cold Heat. I don't know if you've ever heard it. Heavy Funk Rarities from uh, 69 to 74. 74. Some really dope music. I don't know if you ever heard it. But I'm gonna get no. it to Roger to give to you oh, because thanks, man. Thanks it, you know, for, so for, for guys like us, the gift of music is uh, one of the highest uh, respects you man. can pay to someone. So um, I just Yo, want to get thank that to you Roger. So much, and, man. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, just to say thanks and uh, appreciate your work. And I'm really uh, excited about seeing what you're doing next. All the actors and uh, you know Daryl Brick Gibson who slayed yep. it. Also, yep. he, yep. he had that like yep. Boba Fett like. Man, six yeah. men off the bench just coming and yeah. get a drop 12 and go yeah. sit back down. Yeah. You don't really have to say much, but uh, I love the movie and uh, I'm really pulling for you guys and hope uh, you guys make a lot more noise. And uh, I just want to say thanks, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank Shaka, right. it, was, it was a pleasure, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that Great is pleasure. this edition, ladies and gentlemen, of the $5 Buzz. Buzzards out. Good night. Peace. Bye.